0: This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hi, everyone. It's Andrew. I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. If you have any feedback for me, good or bad, please drop me a note uh, on my website, APCardiology.com. I should also mention that you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at apcardio. I try to share articles and links to other podcasts for things that I've found useful uh, for uh, medical education. Today, I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction. Uh, You know, in this point of my training, most of my time and energy is spent in learning and mastering um, medicine and the management of patients. Overriding all of this is healthcare policy, how the hospital gets paid, and reimbursement models. Uh, this is something that's in the background, primarily for me, um, but has a large impact on our day-to-day uh, experience and the, and the experience for our patients. Historically, physicians and hospitals got paid for every single thing that they did uh, for their patients. And this is called a fee-for-service model. The more that you do, the more you get paid. There's been a growing trend and a shift away from that model to other types of payment models, which we'll broadly just call alternative payment models. I admittedly know very little about this subject, but fortunate for me, uh, there's an expert at Washington University who's was recently recruited here. Uh, that would be Dr. Karen Joint Maddox. Uh, Dr. Maddox recently just spent two years working for Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. in the uh, Obama administration where she was working as part of a think tank uh, in that group uh, to prepare a report for Congress on whether a transition from a fee-for-service model to alternative payment models would have any negative outcomes on any vulnerable populations. In March of 2018, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article she wrote about this entitled, Financial Incentives and Vulnerable Populations, Will Alternative Payment Models Help or Hurt? As an introduction to this topic, I wanted to read the opening paragraph from this article. Quote, There is broad agreement that fee-for-service reimbursement does too little to encourage the provision of efficient, high-value care. Consequently, Medicare and other payers are increasingly moving toward alternative payment models, which disrupt the fee-for-service system by incorporating quality and cost targets into reimbursement. Examples include Accountable Care Organizations, which hold providers responsible for meeting annual cost and quality targets, and Bundle Payment Programs, which hold them responsible for meeting cost and quality targets during 30-, 60-, or 90-day care periods. End quote. Today's episode will be the first of two episodes exploring more about this topic. In today's episode, while I visit with Dr. Maddox, we're going to talk about the history of Of the transition from fee-for-service to alternative payment models. This occurred in the early 90s about how quality measures started to be tracked, reported, and how those measures have begun to impact reimbursement. In the next episode, we will then discuss how these payment models may negatively affect patient care. I hope you enjoy today's episode. About well, first, can I have you say your name and what you do?
1: Yes. So I'm Karen Joint Maddox. I'm a cardiologist here at Barnes and spend about three quarters of my time doing health policy research and about a quarter of my time rounding on the cardiology service.
0: Okay. Very good. Thanks. To help put a framework around our discussion, I kind of wanted to start with a case that I, I think relates to this topic of fee-for-service and then about using quality metrics and then guide payments, you know in alternative payment models. So this happened to me back in the, in the cardiac ICU. This was in last fall, and we had an a, uh, elderly woman, she was in like her 70s or so, admitted with cardiogenic shock. Uh, ended up needing to go to the cath lab to be revascularized, had a couple of stents placed, uh, and those stents were placed by the, uh, by the attending physician on the, in the cardiac ICU at the time. And so she came up afterwards over the next subsequent days, Develop some epistaxis and some bleeding, and you notice her CBC: the hemoglobin is slowly trending down over the subsequent days following her uh, her intervention. And uh, each day, I remember, you know, it gets it gets below eight, and I think to myself, oh, we should probably transfuse her. You know, recent, you know, is is very sick. Find more bloods. Attending said, oh, don't transfuse her yet. Over the next following days, continue goes down. Continue refuses to uh, to transfuse the patient until. The new attending comes in on service, and her hemoglobin by that point had dropped down below 6, until that point we were then allowed to, uh, the new attending said, please uh, transfuse her a couple of units of blood, which, uh, in retrospect, and speaking to some others, you know, there's quality metrics around PCI, and one of those are you know, post-PCI complication, one of those can be a blood transfusion, and so, to me, that was just a very stark example of the influence of those quality markers that you can have on your intervention, leading to um, inferior care uh, for the patient
1: afterwards. Yeah, so I think that that's a great starting point. Um, as we really think about the transition that the healthcare system is making from fee-for-service payments over to quality-based reimbursement, which encompasses a whole bunch of different payment models, but is functionally just saying that we're going to tie – What you're paid to what your quality is, all of that is really contingent on having good quality measures and on thinking about both the positive and negative impacts of those quality measures. So, if we take a step back, the quality movement really started with the Joint Commission. So, in the 50s and 60s, there was something called the ORIX Initiative, which was the Joint Commission's first attempt at trying to track quality. And before that, there was no quality tracking. You could argue there wasn't a lot of quality to track. We still put people on bed rest for just about everything. Uh But over that time course, we started to have things that we knew were the right things to do, sort of to generate evidence. So aspirin for a heart attack, thrombolytics for a heart attack initially. Obviously now it's PCI, but then it was thrombolytics. Um, Antibiotics for pneumonia, pretty basic measures. None of that was measured, tracked, recorded, anything. So as the sort of quality movement grew over the you know mid part of the last century, um, the Joint Commission was the first group who really sort of drove measurement. We think of them as the ones who come to inspect things in the hospital, but they were really um, where a lot of that started. Starting in uh, the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, a coalition started to come together of the Joint Commission, Medicare, private payers, other folks, recognizing that we now had many, many quality measures, and they were being inconsistently tracked. And there wasn't really, any, um, wasn't really any push behind them to try to make them better. So some places are measuring quality. Some places weren't. We knew that if you had a heart attack and you walked into one hospital, you might get perfect care, and if you walked into another hospital, you might not. But we didn't know how to quantify that or what to do with that information. So... Over the early 2000s, this coalition essentially built toward what became Hospital Compare. So, in 2004...
0: Hospital Compare is
1: like a... Uh... So, Hospital Compare is a website. Okay. It was the first attempt at public reporting of quality, and consequently, the first attempt at systematic collection of quality data. Okay. So, starting in 2004, in order to get your annual Medicare update, so your you know, last year we paid you $10,000 for this, this year we'll pay you $11,000 kind of update, Uh you had to submit quality data, which led to a very rapid uptake of people submitting quality data. It wasn't technically mandatory initially, but no one's going to give up their update. So by the first year of this hospital compare program, 95%-ish of hospitals were submitting quality data. And it was on these exact same measures. Are you giving aspirin for a heart attack? Are you giving thrombolytics for a heart attack? By this point, there was PCI. Um, So are you getting revascularized? Um, Are you telling people to stop smoking? Very basic stuff. Starting in 2004, that was posted on a website for everyone to see. The website is still up. This is... um, Uh, It's a public resource. It's all Medicare data. If you're ever traveling or if you want to know about the hospitals near your parents, you can Mm -hmm. log on, put in a zip code, and pull up hospitals, and it will give you all sorts of information about their quality. Okay. But the first things up there were just these very basic process measures. Mm -hmm. So by 2008, outcome measures started to be posted. People started to say, well, it's all well and good if we know that everyone's getting aspirin but what about mortality? What about what patients really care about? Shouldn't we be systematically measuring an outcome? Uh So over the course of sort of 04 to 10, 11, um, mortality and readmissions got added to that public reporting website. And this was the beginning of this whole shift, essentially. Now around that same time, the Affordable Care Act was passed. And in the Affordable Care Act were a bunch of programs that took that quality data that was now being publicly reported and turned it into a payment program. So Mm -hmm. if you say the first step was sort of from not collecting anything to making sure it was collected, then to publicly reporting, then to starting to pay for it.
0: Okay.
1: So in the early 2010s, we saw the launch of three hospital-based programs that are basically pay-for-performance programs. This has been, it now exists in the outpatient setting and dialysis and nursing homes, but for the purpose of this discussion, (laughs) everything starts in the hospitals. Okay. So there were three programs. One of them about readmissions, called the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program. One of them about patient safety, called the Hospital Acquired Conditions Reduction Program, which looks at in-hospital infections and adverse events. Uh And one called Hospital Value-Based Purchasing which was essentially a grab bag of other quality measures. So those original aspirin for a heart attack measures, mortality after a heart attack, patient experience, so surveys asking patients whether or not they um, they would recommend the hospital, for example, um, and now a smattering of other measures that have gone in there.
0: And was like were those launched in... Like a prototype where one hospital would be in one model of these, and then, like, another few select other hospitals would be in one of these other models. And then.
1: So that would have been a great idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I commend your systematic thinking. Um, one interesting thing about the way that policy has largely been done is that it's not been done as a clinical trial or even as a, um, or even as a systematic. Like a uh, slow rollout roll out or something. Okay. They're just done, they're just mandated. They're written into law by Congress, and then once it's a law, CMS has to, by law, create a program that matches up to that law. So all of these programs were essentially created under the Affordable Care Act, which then required Medicare to develop these payment programs. So as they rolled out, um, we experienced a major shift in how hospitals were paid, in that It used to be that you would just charge for an admission, and now you charge for an admission, but that charge is going to be adjusted up or down by 1% or 3% based on whether or not you're doing well in all these programs.
0: Not just for that specific admission, but on a global scale. On a
1: global scale. Okay. So if we think about what our hospital has paid this year... On every base DRG payment, which means the basic charge for a hospitalization, that number is getting adjusted by essentially a score of how the hospital has done across these three programs. So, um, even though the programs are largely still based on heart failure, heart attacks, and pneumonia. If a surgeon is going to do a splenectomy, the amount of money that the hospital is going to get for that splenectomy is going to be adjusted up or down a few percent based on performance on those programs. We move a lot of money around the country every day based on these quality programs. So that takes us to the early 20-teens. So these programs are all in full rollout by 13-14. Okay. Um, We're now in year five, I think, of the readmissions program, and so similarly for the other ones. So the percent at risk has ramped up a little bit over time, but they've all basically hit their cap. So most hospitals have in the range of one to three percent of their money at risk under those programs. Now, that's a lot of money, and it's a lot of money when you think about hospital margins. Um, But it's still a fairly nibbling around the edges kind of program. Because underneath those adjustments, hospitals are still getting paid for every single thing they do. So, they just want so the to line be, still share to paid is fee-for-service. <laughs> right.
0: These minor adjustments exactly. for quality.
1: So this is what CMS refers to as fee-for-service with value-based payment. So it's still built on an underpinning of fee-for-service. Every charge is still billed to Medicare. They're all adjusted for quality. That's sort of step one down the path towards changing the payment models. Now, those programs do in many ways what they're set out to do. It focuses people on what we're being measured on. So there's been a lot of attention to readmissions. There's been a lot of attention to sort of these um, protocolized quality improvement um, elements. I remember as an intern, which would have been 04 when the first quality measures were coming out, there was a nurse that was assigned to chase the interns around and make sure that they checked all the boxes for the quality measures. Now, now that might be done in an EHR. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time, it was done by people. But point being, it really did, I think, incent people to think differently about quality. And the data would suggest that, at least on the process measures, performance has gotten much more standardized across hospitals since the advent of these programs. So the variability in just meeting basic quality metrics has, has shrunk pretty dramatically over time in hospitals as these programs have sort of come to fruition. So that's the good news story. The next step in all this has been for people to say, that's all well and good. We're sort of nibbling around the edges here, but what about really fundamentally rethinking how we pay for healthcare? What about freeing up that fee-for-service structure? And paying for outcomes entirely, as opposed to paying for what we do to people. Mm -hmm. And that's when you see the shift into things like accountable care organizations and global payments and bundled payments, where rather than saying, we're going to pay you for every element of care, but adjust it for quality, we now say, we're going to look at an entire episode of care, not just when you had your heart attack, but what happened for the next 90 days. Did you end up in a nursing home? Did you have outpatient visits? And how can a system work to reduce utilization in that entire block of care? And that means reducing readmissions, reducing complications, reducing unnecessary post-acute care use, and trying to think a little bit more holistically about an episode. It makes much, much more intuitive sense from a patient standpoint that that's how we should have been practicing all along right? Mm-hmm. Sort of across settings and across borders and thinking about keeping people out of the hospital as opposed to having them in the hospital. How do we keep people healthy? But we're a far, far cry away from a payment system that has shifted that far. So on the horizon somewhere is thinking about fundamentally rearranging healthcare payment to say, okay, Barnes Health System, we will pay you to keep people healthy. Some people are still going to be hospitalized, some people aren't. But we will essentially pay you to manage someone's health for a year
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is a very, very different system than we will pay you for every hospitalization. It's completely different incentives. We are nowhere near there, but that is ultimately when you hear talk about alternative payment models and sort of disrupting the payment system, that's the kind of disruption that people talk about wanting to to get
0: and, to. And I can imagine a lot of small business owners kind of cringing at the thought of that because that, that model of paying for one episode, I think, would favor larger organizations who have control over many of these, like control of the post acute care setting, the inpatient setting, the outpatient setting, and really being able to strategize on a large corporate level all of these matters. That is really hard to really for, you know, a small practice to do independently on its own.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually it's a it's a very thoughtful question. I think a lot of what we're seeing has led to a lot of consolidation in the market. Hospitals buying up other hospitals and post acute care settings and practices. That's probably good for patients if it leads to better coordination, which is not entirely clear from the data, but you can imagine, sort of, the theoretical reason why that kind of consolidation helps. It certainly does not bring down prices. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a discussion for another day. But the healthcare system is changing in response to these incentives, and there's we're seeing a lot of consolidation across the markets for exactly that reason.
0: Okay. I want to ask a question about some of the 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 drivers behind these changes. So looking at uh, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. Um, a couple of my thoughts as I, as I read about this, I get the sense that it's almost like, uh, Americans and maybe CMS in general has, has perhaps lost trust in physicians to responsibly deliver care and bill appropriately for care. Um, that was given appropriately or not. So, and to then maybe not bill for services that maybe they shouldn't have billed for. So, for example, in uh, in some industries, like if you uh, you know go to your go get your car you know fixed on, and you go to your mechanic, and you know he spends some time working on it fixing it, and says oh I can't fix your car, you know you would think that the mechanic was honest if he said I can't fix your car, you know take it take it somewhere else doesn't bill you any time. You know, you come to a hospital, it's kind of similar, similar analogy. You do a bunch of work. Uh, we can't fix the problem. We still bill you a whole lot of money for this. I don't know. What, what, are some of, what are some of your thoughts? And do you think that has any impact or that had some impact upon some of these drivers? Or is that just overly sensitive physician talk?
1: Um, a lot of this push has been a pushback from policymakers against this feeling that we do a lot of wasteful things in American medicine. And we do. We do a lot of back surgeries for no good reason. We do a lot of imaging for no good reason. Um, We we probably do a lot of unindicated, high margin, high cost things to people. We also do amazing things to people. So some of the most expensive things we can do, heart transplants and ventricular assist devices and complex orthopedic surgeries to save limbs are really spectacular things that we can do Mm -hmm. and very high cost. So it's a mix of being able to provide a lot of things that are high cost but not necessarily high value, along with things that are almost undoubtedly high value, at least in sort of a uh, life kind of perspective. Some may or may not be cost effective, but I don't think there's much argument that it is of value to be able to be pushing the sort of frontiers of of what we can do medically. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that if you you actually take a more population health view of this, we actually underutilize also. So we do too many MRIs for low back pain that's going to go away. Absolutely. And policymakers are right to say that we shouldn't be paying for totally unnecessary care. You probably would have some sort of market response to a mechanic who every time you took your car in, they decided that you needed new brakes Mm -hmm. and replaced your brakes and charged you $2,000. There is no such market in medicine. The information asymmetry is too great. If you go in and someone says you need an MRI for your back pain, you assume you need an MRI for your back pain. So the market controls on sort of the overutilization that you might see in some other industries just really don't work very well in medicine. And certainly if you're having a heart attack
0: or mm-hmm. you're acutely
1: ill for some reason, you're in absolutely no position to either bargain or comparison shop. It, it's not how yeah. the, the market works. Um, the market is supposed to be insurance companies. That doesn't work terribly well either because they just pass costs along. So essentially the, the analogy to any other industry breaks down because there is none of that sort of control on overutilization that people paying their own money and having enough knowledge to push back on knowing what's necessary and what's not would protect you from. The flip side is that we have millions of people in this country that don't have health care and that don't get access to care and that are um, discriminated against and receive lower quality care. So there's been a lot of attention from policymakers toward this, I think, somewhat, not unreasonable, but not totally fair perception that doctors are all out there just trying to make more money by doing unnecessary things. There are people who do that. There are bad apples. I don't think that's the majority of American medicine. And then I think we've not paid enough attention actually to the flip side of that, which is making sure that everyone has access to high quality, high value, low cost prevention and basic care. So we have this very reactive healthcare system that is, at the drop of a hat, we'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do very complex things while we really neglect some of the basics. Mm-hmm. And the current crop of policies is largely directed at trying to root out that unnecessary care. I think we would be better off thinking about both sides of this. We shouldn't be paying for unnecessary MRIs. We shouldn't be doing unnecessary MRIs. Mm -hmm. Um, We shouldn't be doing annual stress tests for people with a history of coronary disease. And when you look at the data, there are millions of dollars spent every year on unnecessary stress tests for people with a history of coronary disease these sort of pan scan things where you can go pay somebody to ultrasound every artery Uh in your body and then tell you what you need in terms of interventions. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff that's just nonsense that should be rooted out of the system. It's not the majority of doctors. It's not the majority of healthcare. And I think the more fundamental problems are about making sure that we can deliver high quality standard prevention and adequate access to many, many more people. So I wish we would shift a little bit away from that, um, talk about overutilization, and more toward talk about equity and health, um, which I think has gotten a little bit lost in some of the political conversations around healthcare.
0: Okay, we're going to cut off the conversation there today. As a recap of things that we learned, we learned about um, how quality measures began to be first reported and collected in the 70s, and then the 90s. Uh, there began to be a public reporting of those available uh, for people to look up. In the 2000s, there then began to be uh, changes in reimbursement based on the quality measures. Where we stand today is primarily still a fee-for-service model with some slight adjustments based on these quality measures. While the payment adjustments based on quality may be small, these can have a large impact on a hospital's profit margin. I hope you'll join us next time as we talk about some of the consequences from these models and the impact that they can have on certain patient populations. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education, at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band, Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP I've used for my theme music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.